Good morning, Mill City. So good to be with you. If you're brand new with us, just for sake of introduction, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And I also want to take a moment and welcome everybody joining us on live stream. Uh, we're so glad that you're with us. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we hope that you're able to be here in person. We'd love to see you and hug you if you're a hugger. Uh, I'm a hugger. So uh, before I jump into the talk today, I also want to just highlight uh, a couple of groups that maybe you've heard me talk about, uh, specifically emotionally healthy relationships and emotionally healthy spirituality, two eight-week courses or city groups um, that are starting in a few weeks. They haven't started yet. And uh, I, I believe that this is, these, are, these, are, these are groups that everybody in our church should go through at least once. Both of them are offered each semester. You can only take one at a time, uh, but go through one and then go through another one um, because our emotional health and our spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's part of our formation as followers of Jesus. And then secondly, uh, our word for the year is practice. And so there's uh, a bunch of groups that are going through the practices uh, specifically and taking a deeper dive into the messages, discussion, and practice together. Highly recommend that as a way to engage not only with the word for the year, but also uh, for part of the transformation that comes through practice uh, in doing that together. So 85 years ago in 1938, Harvard began a study that is still going on today. It's called the Study of Adult, Adult Development. The goal was to answer this question, what makes for a happy and fulfilling life? This study, commonly referred to as the Good Life Study, is the longest scientific study of life satisfaction ever conducted. And the simple answer to that one question is relationships. The stronger our relationships, the more likely we are to live happy, satisfying, and overall healthier, both physically and mentally, and live longer lives. The goal, the good life is built with good relationships. Now, during that same span, the communal strength of our world, and specifically our nation, has declined. This is tracked and highlighted in the book by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. And he talks about not just decline in church attendance, but participation in bowling leagues or all these different types of things. More people drive into their house, put the garage door down, and, and they don't interact. And so a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the number of friends that people have, and 25% and of Americans say they have no confidants. The impact of loneliness and this isolation and lack of communal gathering is being felt in profound ways with mental health issues, physical health issues, shorter lives, anxiety, depression, suicide rates continue to climb. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live in community. So this is our first practice going throughout several different practices of Jesus this year because we believe that it is the container in which we all are a part and we follow Jesus together and creates this domino effect in terms of the other practices that we engage in. I want to remind everybody, whether you were here or not, a couple of weeks ago when I gave a working definition of community, this is important for us as we refer to it, and that is intentional, safe, 
long-term relationships centered around the way of Jesus. So some of you might be like, I don't have long-term relationships. We'll stay in them and they become long-term. That's how it works. (laughs) But we don't, as followers of Jesus, engage in and practice community just for the health benefits, though that's part of it. That's helpful. But because we want to live into three huge realities, which I want us to cover here today. The first one is that community is a sign of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, and He creates the birds and the, and the stars and water and fish and etc. And, and, but then He says in verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Maybe many of us have heard this particular verse, but there's something unique about this verse if you pay attention to it, and that is, he says, let us make mankind in our image. He uses this plural, these plural pronouns because he's talking about the relational dynamic of God, of himself, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the relational dynamic that is found amongst them which means that God is relational. He doesn't just care about relationships. God is relationship. So because we are made in God's image, we are relational, which means that we point to the divine nature when we are in community, which also may give us an idea of why the enemy hates community so much. Because His goal is to divide and isolate and make us ineffective in communicating about who God is, which means that if we fight for community and we fight for long-term relationships and we fight through things, community is spiritual warfare because community says something about God to the world around us and His original design for us as humans. Secondly, community is a sign of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says his purpose, he's saying Jesus. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. The two he's referring to is the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Here he is highlighting the cross, and I'm so grateful for the cross because of, what, of Jesus going to the cross, giving his life away, sacrificial love. He defeated death, and he overcame the power of sin. He said death and sin will not have the last word. And so as a result, we are rescued and saved through the cross. And so we experience salvation, but what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying you are saved and you receive siblings in salvation. I think of many families in our church who have adopted kids and in the process of adoption eventually get to a place where they stand in a courtroom and a judge says to the family and it says essentially you have a new family member and they are receiving all of the benefits including all the inheritance that and that any of the biological children you are officially a part of this family and so this child or children experience and have a mom and dad but along with that mom and dad if there's other kids in the 
family, they get siblings, brothers and sisters. And the same thing is true for us. We're adopted into the family of God. We have this perfect father welcoming us home, but in his home, our brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, some crazier than others. Family is a common metaphor found in the scriptures as a descriptor of the people of God that we as followers of Jesus are a part of. And that sounds really nice until you maybe start thinking about your own family. I don't know about you, but, but my family, whether it's my immediate family or more my extended family, is not all rainbows and unicorns. And Jesus models the reality of the mess of and the dynamics of this community with his disciples. See, the practices of, that we're going through are the practices of Jesus, meaning Jesus did this because we are followers of Jesus. He says, follow me. What he's saying is, do what I did. Jesus lived in community. So I want to describe his community here out of Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 2. He says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. These would be his close disciples. He had hundreds, if not maybe thousands of followers or disciples, but he had a close circle listed here. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this is Jesus' inner circle, and it is made up of good, Torah-observant Jewish boys. Not all of them, but a lot of them. We have this description of these likely teenagers who started following him, but he didn't just call the religious. There's, I want to highlight two particular names in this list that have a descriptor. He's got some that are like so-and-so, the father of, or the son of so-and-so, but, but a descriptor of who they are or what they do. And the first one is Matthew the tax collector. In the first century, to be a tax collector brought along with it a pretty significant stigma. Because a tax collector, or Matthew the tax collector specifically, was a Jew working for the Roman Empire. Jews didn't have a favorable perception towards the Roman Empire. They were being oppressed. They were being heavily taxed. And so a Jewish person who worked for the Roman Empire was seen as somebody who sold their soul to Rome. And oftentimes were even taking a little bit off the top for themselves. And then we have Simon the Zealot. A zealot was a violent, insurgent sect of Jews who used guerrilla tactics to fight Rome, which meant that they would take somebody out, that, that they, wanted to, they were willing to use violence. They would be, in some ways, the first century terrorists trying to eliminate Roman occupation. So we have the guy who sold his soul to Rome and the guy who is willing to kill in order to get rid of Rome. So can you just imagine Matthew and Simon in your city group? <laughs> I mean, what does that look like? Hi, how are you? Let's talk about what's going on in your life. I mean, I don't know. It's maybe a little hard for us to imagine what that first century tension felt like. 
So maybe we put it into modern terms. It'd be kind of like the MAGA supporter, you know, big red hat, big truck, uh, and Nancy Pelosi in the same city group. And we haven't even highlighted the differences in, a pit, in personalities of these guys. We've got Peter, who's impulsive, the impulsive extrovert who seems to speak before he thinks. And then we've got Thomas, the introverted, introspective blogger. We've James and John, who are referred to as the sons of thunder. And then Judas, the cynical, calculating, who eventually betrays Jesus. I mean, what a city group. And it's Jesus' city group. Which makes me think that the person you least want to live with will be in your community. I'm convinced that if you don't have somebody in your city group or in your community that you don't really like, I'm not sure that you're in the right community. Too often I, I think we go in and we're like, no, I can't be with that person which might actually be the exact person that God wants us to be with in order for us to experience the formation and transformation He's calling us to through that person, which is the opposite of what our culture does. Our culture puts us in silos, puts same with same. Through algorithms, we end up in an echo chamber, which is why the church is so unique, because it's not same with same. It's a gathering oftentimes of people we wouldn't normally sit next to. We put, we're in community with other people who, who might vote different than we do, who are in a bit of a different economic situation than we are, who are different in age or different things going on or ideas or hobbies. But the goal is not uniformity. The goal is unity. The goal is to become a family. So we can have a diversity of opinions and all those types of things if you go to a CSU basketball game. But that group's not trying to be a family. The church is. And so we can look to the early church. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. These are followers of Jesus who have put their faith in Jesus. And Jesus has ascended into heaven. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. The word koinonia is, can be translated deep relationship or community. So they committed themselves to deep relationship. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's an advertisement for generosity amongst the family of God. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. Don't you love that? Temple courts, homes, church, city groups, same model doing the same thing. So important to have both. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. A couple chapters later, similar description. It says in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And they're, we're one, they were one in heart and mind about what? About who Jesus is. About the hope of his resurrection. About the fact that he's is truly the Messiah. That's what they unified around. 
Culture today says that if you disagree with me, then you hate me. But Christian community is the way that we are to show the world what it looks like to have differences and love one another. Francis Schaeffer, the late theologian, apologist, and author, wrote in his book, The Mark of a Christian, said, Our relationship with each other is the measure the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Jesus says it in John chapter 13 when he says, They will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. He doesn't say they will know that you are my disciples by how well you can quote the Bible. They will know that you are my disciples by how you post things on Instagram. They will know that you're my disciples by how you vote, or they will know you're my disciples by your stance on vaccines. They will know no, how you love one another. So we point to the love of God when we are in authentic community unified around Jesus. So the question we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How am I doing? How are you doing? Do people know us by our love? By how we treat others? And then finally, community is a sign of resurrection. A sign of how things are supposed to be and one day will be. When Jesus comes back, And the whole world experiences full redemption and resurrection. That is something we long for, we pray for, and we are to build into even now. So how we spend our energy now as a result of awareness of that matters. And there's a lot of people trying to call us to use our energy to fight culture wars. But I believe that we are called to give our energy into being an alternative countercultural community. One that points towards righteousness and justice. Right relationship with God and right relationship with others. Things that, that, that will be exactly as they are supposed to be when Jesus returns. When all will be made right. And there is perfect justice for the oppressed and the oppressor. But that isn't just a then thing. That's a now thing. Walter Brueggemann, theologian and author, wrote in his book, Prophetic Imagination, our lives are to articulate the alternative world that God has promised and that God is birthing before our eyes, if we have eyes to see it. Throughout the scriptures, and especially the Old Testament, we see this warning of God against idols. We see idol, physical idols, statues, Asherah poles, things like that all throughout the Old Testament. And, 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 and we have in the Ten Commandments said no other graven images, no actual statues, whatever, in front of a house or in a house or in front of a temple or a whatever. In our day and age, in our, um, the culture we find ourselves, we don't usually find many of those, so we have more subtle idols, things that are, might be good things, but actually we've made ultimate things. Those can be anything from money to fame to our families, to our spouse, to our careers. And the danger of subtle idols, though, is that it's easy to forget that we are a countercultural community. And we're just a Coloradan. 
which I, I love being a Coloradan. I love where we live, the mountains and the snow and the fresh air and the sunny days and all the stuff. And so we can kind of think, well, I'm just a, I'm just a proud Coloradan and I just have Jesus. But if we, if we think of it that way, then as opposed to being a citizen of a colony of heaven, and we just think of ourselves as a Coloradan who has Jesus, then we are in danger of being colonized, which leads to compromise out of just a desire to fit in. It's not that we're better, we just need to show a different way, to communicate that we live in a different culture, that we don't view things the same way that the world views things, that we don't do money the way the world does. I mean, do you know any secular friends who are into tithing? Some of you are like, I don't know any Christian friends that are into tithing. <laughs> we don't do power the same way that the world does power. We don't do sexuality the same way that our culture does sexuality. We don't do identity the same way that our culture does identity. We don't do relationships the same way that our culture does relationships. We don't do careers the same way that our culture does careers. And so that means that every city group, every Christian community should become a picture of the future we want to create. A picture of the future building even now. But our culture says, do whatever you want. You be you. You find your own truth. But as a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, in Luke chapter 9, and he says this in multiple other places in the Gospels, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Is he saying, you be you? If you want to be my disciple, you just, you be you. And he's saying, you got to deny yourself and die. Because Jesus is saying, if you die to yourself, then you will actually truly live. Then you will experience the good life the flourishing life that God has for each one of us. And so, in being a part of community, we help people imagine the world in a way that is different than what is in front of them. See, we point to the future when we're in community. We point to resurrection. Now, you might be thinking, those are great ideas, and they are. They're amazing realities. But then, we also cannot dismiss the reality that community is messy, that those big ideas translated into our everyday life um, don't always just work smoothly and easily, that there's bumps. That's why there's so many one another passages in the New Testament related to forgive one another, bear with one another, Make every effort to live at peace with one another over and over and over again. In other words, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting for unity in your community. It takes work. It takes effort. It's not always clean. It's not always easy, but it is worth it. And it doesn't just happen on accident. Sometimes I, I hear people like, yeah, I really want all that, but I just, I just can't, it doesn't seem to come to me. Which means that we just have to take some initiative. We have to take some, some effort. <laughs> I've been thinking about Zacchaeus this last week. 
and how Jesus invited himself over for dinner. Some of you need to stop waiting and you need to invite yourself over for dinner. Hey, I need some friends. Can I come over for dinner? I need deeper community. Can I take you to coffee? So this is our weekly practice for all of us to engage in. Ask yourself, what am I longing for in community? Be honest with yourself. What are you longing for? And then take a step. For some of you, that step is going to be into a city group. But for others of you, if you're going to be honest about what you're longing for, you're, you're in a group, but you're lacking depth. Or you're, you've got some people around you, but you're, you need consistency. Or, or it's like right on the precipice, but you can't seem to open your heart, or they don't seem to open their heart to you. I've been thinking about this question as I've been preparing for this message. Jossie and I have had a conversation about it this week. and I know some things I'm longing for. And for me, it is going to involve the step of calling some friends and saying, I, I want more. And it's nothing about them. It's just about what I know that I'm longing for and what I need in community because I want this to be true. I want my community to reflect creation, salvation, and resurrection well. So I don't know what that conversation looks like for you. For some of you who maybe have been like on the on the fence about joining a city group, maybe this is it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Maybe it's to go to that city group and somehow be the one that goes first and initiates and it says, I'm going to take the risk of being vulnerable, hopefully with the, that it gets reciprocated. And for some of you, what you're longing for in community cannot be found in other people. It can only be found in God. If you were here last week, I encourage you to listen to the conversation that Dr. Hud and I had about needing to find the delight of God that he has in us first before we can go into, and otherwise we will expect that from others with that which we should have been receiving and can only receive from God. And so for some of you, the step you need to take is a courageous step to cross the line of faith and to say, God, I need you. Jesus, I give you my life. As a way to say, I'm going to step into the family of God. I guess I'm going to take in all these crazy people around me as my brothers and sisters. But I need, I need that. And so if that's you, will you just sincerely under your breath say, Jesus, I give you my life. And maybe for that's for the first time or maybe that's for the first time in a long time. If that's you, welcome to the family of God. Perfect father, crazy brothers and sisters. I love that we can all take that step together and each one of us is going to have a unique step as we take and participate in that weekly practice this week. But I want us all to take a step together by taking communion.
As you walked in here today, you should have received a communion cup. If you did not, you can just raise your hand and one of our host team will make sure that you receive a cup. You can just keep your hand up high until they get to you. For some of you who maybe are wondering or thinking about, do I take communion or not? We practice what we call open communion, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to participate with us. It's really not about membership in one particular church, but about belonging to the family of God. If you choose not to participate with us, that's okay. I love how it says in Acts chapter 2, how they met in the temple and in homes. The, one of the pictures I get of that is that we, we gather together to meet around the table of the Lord, and then we meet in there's one of those homes around each other's tables. But sometimes we think, I can't come to either of those tables because I'm a little messed up. You don't know what I did last night. If you only knew what I've been involved in, I'm not sure that you'd welcome me to your table. But the table of family, of people, and God's table, which is a metaphor for communion, is not a gift for the perfect. It is not a reward for the perfect. It is a gift for the broken. And all of us are broken. And so we participate to experience and be reminded of the grace of God. So before we take communion, the Bible says that we're to examine ourselves. So I just want to take about 30 seconds or so. Just if you would, you can open up your hands like this as a symbol of surrender. We just ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, Holy Spirit, search me and know me. Find if there's any offensive or anxious ways in me. Just confess those to God. Maybe they're in relationship to how you've handled relationships or pushed people away or not fought for them and forgiven. Whatever it might be, would you go to God and welcome His forgiveness and His grace as you confess to Him? time we've taken communion, we take communion, we not only take a moment for individual confession, but we also want to be reminded of the fact that we're all in need of grace, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's not one of us in here that's in more or less need than the other. And so oftentimes we'll pray a confessional prayer together, uh, but I'd like to do it just a little bit differently today. We're going to we're going to sing a song, a, a confessional song. Most of us will know this song. The words will be on the screen, but it's Amazing Grace. So I want us to sing this song as a corporate confession and a reminder of our need for Jesus. So can we all stand together? Just hold on to your communion cup. and Let's sing as an act of corporate confession. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. 
Scripture says that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you want to take the bread, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take the juice. The scripture says right here that we're to do it in remembrance of him. It isn't just about, oh yeah, I I forgot about that. I just need to remember that. It is that, but it is something more powerful in the first century Jewish imagination To remember was to bring the past into the present. And so for us, as we take the bread and the cup, we not only remember what Jesus did, we bring the power and the grace of everything that he did on the cross into our present lives. We experience the fullness of forgiveness. We receive the power of grace and we live into the reality of resurrection. And so Father, we thank you We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrificial love. Thank you, God, that you loved your world so much, your design, the way you made us, your whole world. And she said, this isn't the way it's supposed to be when sin and death entered. And so you initiated a rescue plan culminating in your son, Jesus, coming into the world, showing us what it looks like to be truly human and we live faithful to you to give his life sacrificially away and to come out of the grave in resurrection power. And so, Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would fill us with that same power. I pray that we would live out in that same grace offered to us and that we individually and together collectively would speak to and declare the reality of your creation, the reality of your salvation, and the reality of your resurrection and second coming. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.